Hello, you're listening to The World Ahead. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. This future-gazing podcast series is focusing on the key themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on the predictions and analysis in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2022, which is out now. It's common after a major UN climate summit for the momentum behind climate policy to enter something of a lull, most noticeably in years after big summits that were preceded by much fanfare and high expectations. There was a lull in 2010, for example, after the disastrous COP15 summit in Copenhagen at the end of 2009, which had promised a new global climate treaty, but instead delivered a devastating postponement. In the wake of the COP26 summit that took place in Glasgow at the end of last year, however, the deepening climate emergency means there's a much greater sense of urgency. But will it be translated into significant action this year? One hopeful sign is the willingness to collaborate across borders on green energy and resource sharing. And perhaps some of the deals made in 2021 will inspire more countries to work together when it comes to cutting carbon emissions. Here's The Economist's environment editor, Katrine Bragg. Lying on the bottom of the North Sea, on a stretch of seabed that sits between the UK and Norway, is a pair of brand new high-voltage cables that link up the electricity systems of these two countries. The connection was first switched on in October of 2021. Its goal is to increase the amount of renewable power consumed in both countries. It's called the North Sea Link and is made up of 720 kilometres of cables that run under fields and a 230 metre deep lake through a granite mountain and across Norwegian fjords in addition to the full width of the North Sea. The project is a collaboration between Britain's national grid and its Norwegian counterpart, Statnet. It can ferry 1.4 gigawatts of electricity between the two nations enough to power 1.4 million European homes. You can think of North Sea Link as maximising the renewable energy of both the UK and Norway. Nigel Williams is the North Sea Link project director for the UK National Grid. In Norway, they've got a 100% hydro system, so it's safe to assume when we import power from Norway, it's pretty much 100% hydro. It's totally green. Now, we expect that... The vast majority of the time, we'll be importing power from Norway. But now and again, when the UK has a surplus of an excess of wind, normally when the demand levels in the UK are low, then we do export power to Norway. Now, ordinarily, before North Sea Link, we would curtail that wind in the UK and the wind would be lost. The renewable energy would be lost. The construction of the North Sea Link began in 2015 and came in time and under budget. No small challenge considering it was completed during global lockdowns. It is one example of the kind of international cooperation that will improve access to renewable energy and help countries meet their climate targets. For Nigel Williams, the project's success is helping to reimagine the ways that countries share energy. But these wind farms are becoming bigger and bigger, so we're starting to think about how we can create a North Sea grid system where you have wind farms connecting an element of its power to the UK, an element to Norway, an element to to Holland, etc., etc. And there might be many of these. So I think we're starting to see the early makings of a kind of an integrated North Sea grid. 
This kind of cooperation can be difficult, even between willing countries, overcoming red tape, political differences and years of negotiation. But what about nations that aren't natural allies? Many of those that will suffer the greatest impacts of climate change are already under stress from internal and external conflicts. Even in these most difficult of circumstances, there are NGOs that are determined to help countries share resources. EcoPeace Middle East is one such organization. They are proving that bitter political rivals can cooperate on climate solutions. The environment can actually be a impetus for peacebuilding. And particularly the climate crisis, which doesn't recognize uh, borders. Gidon Bromberg is the Israeli co-director. So Echo Peace Middle East, as the name suggests, is focusing on ecology issues and peace building. We actually uh, were founded back in 1994 at a time of euphoria when we all thought that peace had broken out. And we were concerned that environment and sustainability need to be an outcome of the peace process. Sadly, very quickly, we came to see that uh, the peace process wasn't advancing at all. And the several years of cooperation that, that we had developed brought a level of trust amongst our team members to really uh, understand that it's a common threat to all of our peoples, Palestinian, Jordanian and Israeli, and that these issues simply cannot wait for the broader issues, the broader geopolitical issues to be solved. That working together to solve the climate crisis issues that we face is not a favor to the other side. It's an issue of self-interest, and if done properly, an issue of mutual gain. The Middle East along the Eastern Mediterranean has been identified by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as a climate hotspot, and along with North Africa, is the most water-scarce region in the world. Rising temperatures, desertification and a reduction in rainfall means there is an urgency to the work that EcoPeace Middle East are doing. But just how do you find workable solutions? So EcoPeace has been working for close to three decades and has developed uh, programming that is on the one hand bottom-up, very much focused at the community level, calling for the type of environmental solutions that are needed, and on the other hand, advancing top-down research and advocacy that identifies solutions and brings in, uh, of course, the governments and the private sector to solve the urgent transboundary environmental problems that we face. Towards the end of 2020, we uh, launched a new report and a call for a green-blue deal for the Middle East. And we're very much inspired by, on the one hand, the Biden administration's commitment to uh, fight the climate crisis in the United States, but also uh, Europe's leadership in the European Green Deal. And we thought that, you know, given uh, the crisis situation that's already felt in the Middle East, then we need not just a national policy, we need a regional policy to meet the challenge of the climate crisis. In November 2021, Israel and Jordan signed a declaration of intent for a water for energy deal. A massive solar farm is to be built in the Jordanian desert, funded by the United Arab Emirates. It will provide renewable energy to Israel, and in return, they will provide water to Jordan. Although the deal was pushed along by America's climate envoy, 
John Kerry, the vision behind the project came from EcoPeace Middle East. The declaration signed in November is a model for out-of-the-box thinking on climate security. Without this type of new arrangements moving forward, Israel would struggle to meet its commitments for renewable energy under the Paris Climate Accords, and Jordan would struggle to meet its basic water needs. As the Green-Blue Deal, as released by Ecopeace, continues to advance, Ecopeace is committed to seeing the climate security needs of all of our peoples met, Palestinian, Jordanian and Israeli together. These two projects in the North Sea and the Mediterranean show what is possible when it comes to sharing valuable resources and renewable energy. In future, collaborations like these will become more and more important as countries wean themselves off fossil fuels. International linked-up grids are likely to be a key tool for making the most of wind, solar and hydropower. For Nigel Williams, last year's COP26 reinforced this idea. Well, you know, it's been lovely to watch the the COP, all the senior world leaders getting together and hopefully establishing policies and framework to enable more of this sort of collaboration. And it's down now to the utilities and the transmission system operators to get together and, and make things like this happen. So I think it all starts with political will, financial will, regulatory support, and good frameworks which can make these things happen. The hard thing is just kind of getting these projects off the ground to start with, and I hope that COP will be the springboard for more of these going forward. And Katrine is here with me now, along with BJ Vathis-Warren, our Energy and Climate Innovation Editor. Hello to you both. Hi, Tom. Hi there. Kat, we heard about cooperation there, but how much cooperation did we actually see at COP26? And, And what are the prospects for action on climate this year? Well, Tom, I'd say it's always a bit of a mixed bag on cooperation and climate change. Obviously, this is a global problem. The climate and warming do not respect borders. The atmosphere doesn't really care where carbon dioxide comes from. It only cares how much ends up being emitted. And so this is an issue which is inherently reliant on cooperation if we if we're serious about tackling it and the UN is you know a key forum for that kind of cooperation so the the, the sheer fact that you have these COP26 COP27 all of these annual COP events suggests that there is some cooperation but they're always mired with everybody coming to the table with their own agendas their own requirements and their own needs and so that's why you have these talks that go you know in this case, 24 hours overdue. I'd say in the end, we had a document that was stronger than was perhaps anticipated. But there were some definite challenges along the way. And there were in the final hours of negotiations, some strong words that were lost and that therefore weakened the ultimate document. Now, before we get to what's going to happen with COP27 this year, before that, earlier in the year, the latest IPCC reports are due to come out. So what can we expect there and what impact, if any, are they going to have? Yeah, every few years, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issues these sort of big assessment reports. And actually, they come in four volumes. We had the first one last year in August of 2021. It declared a code red for climate. It announced unequivocally was the word that human influence had warmed the atmosphere. These are all basically summaries of the science looking at 
how climate change is happening, the drivers of climate change. And although the language was stronger than we'd seen before, I don't think there were many real surprises. The first of the next three reports, all of which will come out this year, looks at the impacts of climate change. And I think we can expect to hear that the impacts, the consequences of climate change on human societies around the world are already much greater than had been anticipated and in future will be greater than had been predicted. So the impacts are already worse and will get worse. And then the third report, which comes out in the spring, looks at pathways for limiting the impacts of climate change and for addressing climate change. And these are sort of the socioeconomic pathways. These are the hypothetical futures that can be better or worse, depending on the decisions that human societies make. One conclusion, I think, will be that the work ahead is going to be very, very difficult indeed. The rate at which emissions need to decrease over the coming decades is phenomenal. The fourth report is really a synthesis of syntheses. So it sort of draws together all of the, the three preceding reports. Okay. Now, Vijay, what do these reports mean for business, if anything? Does it sort of help if the UN has definitely said, yes, this is really happening and these are the impacts? Does that put more pressure on businesses to act? So I see three impacts from the IPCC process, and in particular, the most recent reports and the ones we're looking forward to this year. One is it has made climate denialism untenable. This was actually an accepted and even fashionable position in some industries, often mining or uh, oil. You can imagine there were climate deniers or certainly those who rubbish the science. You cannot really do this in the oil industry as a CEO any longer. And that's actually quite important because among the forces that have tried to thwart progress at these COP meetings behind the scenes have been the lobbyists for the fossil fuel industry. So that's moving the needle on what's acceptable for them to say and to some degree to do. The second impact is that it is encouraging a wave of climate-oriented financing, so-called ESG or environmental, social, and governance funding that is now one of the biggest forces in global investing, if not the biggest at the moment, that is lots of capital seeking to reward projects that are purportedly climate-friendly. It is a genuine force that is now in financial markets looking for things like green bonds or projects to finance or companies that can show some credentials that they're doing something on climate change more than their competitors, edging out those that are making no effort at all or are still stuck in the past. And that is generally a force for good if you're concerned about climate. And the third is that it's actually beginning to change the business models of a number of companies so that rather than just doing what they used to do, they're fundamentally looking for new opportunities. So I think those three forces will play out and let us have a bit of optimism about the impact of these scientific reports. Okay, let's hope so. They certainly put the pressure on people to act. Going back to the negotiating table, as it were, we've got COP27 coming up in Egypt towards the end of the year. Now, Kat, as I understand it, you normally have sort of mini COPs in between the, the big ones every five years, but they're making a bit of an exception in this case. Is that right? What can we expect? Yeah, that is right. But what happened in Glasgow was that, in fact, the science, as Vijay was just discussing, put a lot of pressure on politicians and on businesses. And it made it very clear that there is a huge gap between what the 
political promises and pledges add up to in terms of emissions reductions, particularly over the next decade, and what needs to be achieved in the next decade in order to give the world a good chance of having no more than 1.5 or roughly 1.5 degrees of global warming. And that gap can be measured in billions of tons. So if you add up everything that's in the pledges, you arrive at a certain number of billions of tons of emissions that will be avoided in the next decade. And you can compare that to the avoided emissions that are required for 1.5. And the gap between those two is roughly 17 to 20 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, that's huge. And so what governments were tasked with at the end of Glasgow was to come back in 12 months' time with bigger, better promises in an effort to close that 17 to 20 billion ton gap. So that makes COP27 somewhat bigger than it might have been otherwise. It's sort of, to some extent, I'm thinking of it as governments have been sent back home to improve on their homework and come back with something better in 12 months' time. Thank you, Vijay and Kat. And next, we'll be looking at China's role in tackling climate change. But first, a quick reminder. If you want unlimited access to The Economist app and website, or a printed copy sent directly to your door every week, you need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. To hear China's Communist Party tell it, one benefit of its autocratic system of government is that it lets rulers plan for the long term. So it should follow that China, now the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, is well placed to tackle climate change, not least because it's exceedingly vulnerable to global warming and to rising sea levels. In September 2020, Xi Jinping, the country's president, decreed that China's carbon emissions will peak by 2030 and that by 2060 the country will become carbon neutral. A nationwide emissions trading system was launched last summer and the country has built huge numbers of wind farms and solar panel arrays with more to come. But is all this enough and how can China balance economic growth with cutting carbon? I spoke to Ma Jun, the founder and director of the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs, or IPE, an environmental group based in Beijing. I started by asking him about the recent spike in global energy demand, which has led to power cuts in China. We're facing a real headwind to deliver the real progress on climate action. Uh, we're actually seeing the all this rebound of carbon emission due to the increasing demand for fossil fuel. You know, globally, there's a energy crisis looming. And in China, we have just experienced the worst power shortages in a decade. So globally, you know, not just in China, but in America, in Europe, we have seen fossil fuel capacity being boosted. And uh, in China, also, and some of the, the coal capacity have been released again, and the imports of, of coal and natural gas is uh, increasing. So what could be done about that? And how does addressing the short-term energy crunch tie in with addressing the long-term challenge of climate change? Short-term, I have to say, you know, this is helpful to address the energy and power shortage. 
all this action is going to have a profound negative impact on the global climate agenda. And in China, you know, what is uh, uh, encouraging is central government is uh, taking an action to drive the local government to climb down on the so-called Liangao uh, projects, which means energy and pollution intensive uh, projects. We also recognize that uh, their energy efficiency still lagging pretty far behind the global best practice. So on the demand side, uh, a lot of efforts is being made at this moment. And on the supply side, we also need to recognize that the intermittent nature of all these renewables uh, means that uh, if we truly want the renewable to function properly, then we need to do a lot more work to boost the power storage capacity and to build a smarter grade. And most importantly, to transform the existing coal power plants so that they can facilitate the vast expansion that we planned for new renewable energy capacity. Now, you're an optimist that despite disagreements in other areas, there is, in fact, scope for China and the West to work together on climate change. And one particular area of potential cooperation that you identify is the factories in China that many Western companies rely on to produce their products. So in broad terms, how might cooperation actually work over those factories? As you mentioned, that China is the factory of the world. It's, uh, it's not just manufacturing to meet the rising demand from China, but also it's manufacturing for the world. The largest part of the production carbon footprint of many of these companies uh, lies in the supply chains of their Chinese factories. And these factories, in turn, they contribute substantially to the emissions that China has pledged to eliminate. So we believe that uh, greening this global supply chains can thus create a very helpful synergy between China and the West. So that's why five years ago, right after the Paris agreements were signed, we started creating an index to assess the supply chain climate action of major brands, uh, which made their commitments uh, align with Paris agreements. So with a supply chain climate action index, uh, we're assessing the quality and integrity of many of these ambitious emission reduction commitments uh, made by the multinational and local companies. And we do this by working with our NGO and corporate partners uh, and, and they recognize leaders and also called out many laggers. I see. So then Western companies can use your data to choose suppliers with the smallest carbon footprints and sort of put pressure on the others. Finally, do you think we'll see other examples of cooperation between countries on environmental matters where the environment is deemed you know, more important than the politics? When it comes to environment, pollution knows no boundary. So sometimes the resources uh, are often shared by different countries and regions, uh, for example, those uh, international rivers. Uh, so we have seen conflict uh, arise here and there because of that. But we also have seen all this uh, agreement being reached and collaborations uh, being made. For example, in Middle East, the water is such a kind of scarce resources, uh, but countries still manage to come together, you know, countries with uh, with very, very different views on some of the issues. So I do see that uh, when it comes to the issue of climate, to the ocean protection and uh, the preservation of biodiversity, uh, this matters to the entire humanity.
So I think one of the ways for us to work together is to use data as a way to, to connect all these missing dots in this globalized uh, manufacturing, sourcing, investment, and then even consumption. Uh, we are now developing a new uh, mapping tools that can help all the consumers in China to easily measure the products they purchase, you know, day in and day out. And I hope, you know, with the changing of the emission factors, uh, some of these tools uh, for corporate use, for the consumer's use, can easily be adapted by the surrounding regions. Uh, so I hope eventually, you know, we can all pay attention to this and together we can better protect the climate and our planet at home. Vijay Marjun was talking there about cooperation with the US and with other countries when it comes to manufacturing. How feasible do you think all of this is as a way of tackling climate change? Well, Tom, to be honest, having spent a lot of years in China, close to the manufacturing sector, observing how innovation and business works in China, I think at the level of companies, there's tremendous cooperation. But what he's talking about would require government level cooperation. And there we've seen in some ways that the well has been poisoned, first by Donald Trump, but President Biden has continued a policy towards China that is more or less uh, Donald Trump's policies when it comes to economics, trade, and so on. And so though there has been some lip service about cooperation on climate pronouncements from both sides, in practical terms, it's very hard to see some form of meaningful cooperation that changes the behavior of companies in China uh, such that they emit a lot less carbon to suit global desires and needs. Now, China will change because it suits China's needs and, and it fits their own plans. But isn't his whole idea that if he makes this database available, then Western companies can choose the lowest carbon Chinese suppliers and you don't need to have a an overarching political agreement. The companies can just quietly get on with it themselves. So there's nothing that stopped companies from being low carbon in the first place, Tom, right? Companies know who their vendors are. So I'm all in favor of greater data and greater transparency. That's fantastic. Let a light of sunshine expose the true carbon intensity of processes. And if there were to be a desire to choose vendors that are low carbon over those that are, let's say, using a, a lot of coal for their inputs and so on, and that's what multinationals choose to do, that would be fantastic. But in fact, in reality, what we've seen is that Western multinationals generally do not want to reveal too much or even to know too much about their supply chains, because then they become responsible for labor abuses or other transgressions, not just on climate. So there's a willful, mischievous lack of knowledge that benefits multinationals that don't want to be held accountable. And it's genuinely very difficult to know as well. That's another part of this problem. So I think in a hopeful thesis, Yes, the best behaving companies, the ones that want to have a better public relations, maybe a handful of those with global brands at risk of boycott may do that. But I don't see the lion's share of the relationship between China and the U.S. moving on on a voluntary basis. I think it does take standards, regulation and some form of government action that has some teeth. Otherwise, you're not going to see all of the, you know, literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of vendors in China suddenly adopt clean energy and other forms of low carbon practices, which might not be in their short term economic interest on the wing and a prayer that somebody will look in the database and choose them over a competitor that might be you know, significantly cheaper, making exactly the same widget. We actually, on that front, have some promising, relatively promising good news that came out of COP26. And that was this joint statement that was produced between China and the US, or, or more specifically between the two countries' negotiators, John Kerry and Xi Jinping. And that statement, I think, 
deserves mention because it's a sign that some of the positioning that existed between the US and China under Obama is back. And part of that has to do with the fact simply that these two men know each other, John Kerry and Xi Jinping know each other very well, and are well positioned to collaborate and well positioned to establish the kind of regulations that um, that Vijay is talking about. So the document talks about collaboration on energy, on technology like carbon capture and storage, on direct air capture, etc. We don't know what that's going to look like yet. It still needs to be hammered out. But we do know that in the past, there's been collaboration, for instance, on intellectual property, which definitely helps with these uh, green tech I would say, however, that we, as ever, need a note of caution here because that collaboration between the US and China is very much dependent on the administration, the US administration of the day. And the people who are in power right now will not necessarily be around to maintain the collaboration in the future. So who knows what's going to happen after the next US election, for instance. Okay, well, one of the things we've repeatedly called for at The Economist is a global carbon price and a global carbon market. Given that we don't have one, I understand China is starting to regulate its carbon market. So is there any prospect of that turning into action in this regard? I think the news is not only not good, it's bad. We don't have a global carbon price, and I don't see a significant prospect of one emerging. Hardly a fifth of global emissions are covered by a meaningful carbon price at this time, even though there are pioneering jurisdictions like Europe, like California, that have some form of carbon pricing mechanism, be it a carbon tax or some other form of regulation that imposes a price. It's still the minority of global economic activity and certainly emerging economies where a lot of the dirty uh, manufacturing is done and then exported to rich countries, they don't have a meaningful carbon price. The experiments in China have been going on for more than 20 years, to my knowledge, and they're still at the stage of pilot or small scale. They're not at the level that's big enough or with enough teeth to influence investment decisions and change the profile of greenhouse gas emissions and manufacturing. I would say that going forward, Europe is looking into some form of border taxes, we can call them. They call it a border adjustment on carbon that's gaining some momentum. This, in theory, would say that, you know, if steel is made in India, which is often made with very heavy carbon footprint because of the coal used, if you ship it to Europe at the border, a tax would be imposed that would uh, not put steel makers in Europe at a disadvantage who do face a very heavy carbon price in, in Europe. That's the concept. In practice, whether this is compliant with WTO rules, whether all European countries are ready to get on board with this, which they are not at the moment. There's a lot of infighting and differences of opinion among European countries on this. And once that's imposed, would other countries retaliate, which has already been threatened by India and some other countries that would be put at, uh, in their view, jeopardy or at risk for their, their industries would suffer from what they consider an unfair tariff, basically. And so there are a lot of question marks about this mechanism, but it is something that's out there that we're going to see perhaps making some progress in 2022. Kat, on the European carbon pricing mechanism, I think we've been quite rude about it for several years, saying that the price was much too low. But recently, it's got rather a lot higher, hasn't it? So might we, in theory, see something similar in China, which is what starts off as quite a a feeble mechanism might, in fact, end up having some teeth later down the line? Well, I think that's the hope. And certainly in 2021, it was very interesting to watch the European carbon price pass the 50 euros a tonne mark uh, sometime during the summer and then carry on climbing up and approach the 75 euros a tonne mark towards the end of the year. This is getting 
interestingly close to the $100 a tonne mark, which is often used as sort of the point at which green technologies become financially interesting. So it's taken years and years for the European carbon market to get there. Who knows what's going to, to happen in China? Thank you both. Thank you, Tom. Thanks. You've been listening to The World Ahead. You can read more about these stories and other themes and trends for the coming year in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2022, which is on newsstands now and available online at economist.com slash worldahead2022. This podcast was produced by Simon Jarvis and the executive producer was Sandra Schmorelli. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. 